Man, he is killing it. Man, you and your whole team, I so appreciate you guys. Some of you don't know that Christy and I actually, we started in ministry as youth pastors. And at times, there were just six kids in the room, man. But we'd just get in there and cry out to God and pace the room back and forth and do our best to disciple those kids in the faith. And man, Christian and Ellie, we're so proud of you guys. And we're so grateful. We're grateful for your lives and your leadership and your ministry and so excited to see what's to come. I did this in the first service. I want to do it again in the second service. For all of our youth, whether you go to GC or not, I want to pray for you guys. So if you are in junior high or in high school, could you guys just stand up today? I want, to, I want the church to see you. I want the church to celebrate you. <clears throat> yeah, come on. Come on, yes. And church, would you help me pray into and over and for the next generation just stretch forth your hands, or if you know them, you can place your hands on them, moms and dads, or friends, neighbors, aunties, uncles, cousins. Lord, in the name of Jesus, Father, thank you for these young men and these young women. Lord, thank you that the future is bright because you're doing a work in the lives of these young men and these young women. Father, I thank you that there are encounters that you have already coordinated and scripted and scheduled in the heavenlies for these young men and these young women. And Father, we say yes and amen to a heavenly God divine encounter. Visit them in their bedrooms. Visit them in their dreams. Show the King of glory to be real to them. Father, I pray that spiritual passion and fire would burn inside of them. God, that you would show them the things that matter, the things that are eternal, the things that are worth their time and their affection and their attention, and their devotion, and their money, and their lives. God, show them the things that matter. And Lord, I pray that the things that don't matter, God, that you would give them the courage to cut those things off. Lord, I pray that you would align their affections with the affections of heaven. Lord, we pray that you would break confusion off of them right now, that you would silence every lie of the enemy off of their voices. You would silence the lie of the enemy, God, that is in their minds, and God, that they would hear the voice of the good shepherd and the voice of a stranger they would not follow. And we bless them today, God, to flourish in Jesus' name. Amen. We love you guys. Give another hand today. Thank you, God. Friends, we have a special guest in the house today. Christy, do you want to introduce Marlon? Do you want to grab that, grab that handheld over there? This is what happens in second service. We get to breathe a little bit. Bless her heart, she wasn't expecting this. Just so one of our partners that we partner with at, as New Life is we partner with a school in Guatemala. And this school, you guys, it's, it's incredible. It's like a charter school. We would probably liken it to a charter school in the U.S., but it is a Christ-based charter school. And it has been founded in the midst of one of the most impoverished areas um, in southwest Guatemala near the, near the ocean. And this area of Reu, um, again, is so, so deeply in need. These are people who just for a very, very, very long time have lived in such depths of despair and depression and just not knowing how to get out of it. So anyhow, the Lord raised up a ministry, and we help support that ministry. We help support these students. A lot of, particularly at North and some of our other congregations, we actually do sponsorship with these kids. We sponsor these students so that they can go to school, so they can learn and grow. They get nutrition. They get dental help. They get all kinds of things. If I could show you the video, I would, but I don't have that available right now. Um, but it is a phenomenal ministry, what they do, and 
the families that are being impacted. So anyhow, Marlon is here. If you would mind standing, give Marlon a hand. Marlon assists uh, Lourdes, who Lourdes is, is the woman who founded the ministry, but Marlon really helps make just at the everyday things happen there. And she's here because we're going to be doing an event after service for those who sponsor kids. We're going to be doing kind of an update event for them a little bit later this afternoon. So she's come to town to do that. And we just bless you, Marlon. And just in, in the vein of what we were praying earlier, we just pray healing over your son. We pray total restoration over his body. We pray that his heart would remain encouraged and hopeful and that he would encounter the Lord in the midst of this difficult season and that you and your husband would be strengthened and that your hope would be full in Jesus' name. Thank you for being here. Amen, amen. Amen. We love you. We love you, Marlon. So good to see you. Friends, if you have your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to join me to go to the book of 1 John. And Everett, I just need you to be ready because we, we might go off the grid here today. So I just need you to be, get those fingers ready, brother. 1 John chapter 2. And by the way, there was some verses in 1 John chapter 2 we leaned in on in the first service and we're not going to lean in on those verses in the second service today. So if you're interested in some of those, I might mention them or highlight them, but you can check out the 9 a.m. service on YouTube or on Facebook. Uh, I think there's something else that we're supposed to emphasize here in the 11 a.m. service, so we're going to get to that. Would you pray with me, Lord Jesus? We ask that the Spirit of God and the Spirit of truth bring illumination to us. We ask, oh God, that you would open up our ears and that you would open up our eyes to see the light of God. Father, we ask that you would cause our hearts to be tender and soft in your hands. Father, we ask that you would awaken spiritual hunger inside of us to grant us courage and strength to say yes to the wisdom of God and the ways of God. Lord, make us a people that love the fear of the Lord, who delight in the fear of the Lord, that holiness would be our portion, that holiness would be our trophy, God, that holiness would be the fruit of our lives. Father, we pray that your spirit today, that you would guide us as we walk in the scriptures and that you would lead us into all truth, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to begin right here in 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. We're going to cover probably about 50 to 60% of what we did in the first service out of 1 John chapter 2, 12 and 14, and then we're going to kind of go in a little bit of a different direction there. So read with me, if you would, beginning of verse 12. I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. But those of you who might be a little bit new in the faith. John is speaking to a community of believers and he's hitting three demographics of spiritual maturity and he hits these three demographics twice. So you're gonna see this pattern. I write to you, dear children, I write to you fathers and mothers or those who are mature and then I write to you young ones. And by the way, most of us are gonna spend the majority of our time in that category as being quote unquote young ones in God. Last service, I asked the people, I said, how many of you would qualify yourself as, as a father or mother in the faith that you have walked with God for about 40 or 50 years, that you've maintained that level of longevity, that your passion for God has continued to grow, that you have fought some battles in the spirit and that you've made some victories over sin in your life and you're still giving yourself wholly and completely to the purposes of God, and you've maintained that for decades. And everyone was just like, 
can I raise my hand? And then we just determined that nobody in the house, with the exception of Jim and Valerie Bixler, <laughs> qualified to be mature ones. I think Steve and Sherry Reynolds are in that boat too, you guys. So he writes to these three different levels or these three different categories of believers. And there's a reason why he does this. And if you're reading through the book of 1 John over and over and over again, what you will find is that what he says to each of these three groups of people, he just weaves in and out of the book over and over and over again. And I'll show you here in a second. So he writes to the young children. He says, I write to you because you have this revelation and you have experienced the fact that your sins have been forgiven. We foundation our lives in God on this truth that our sins have been forgiven. So much of our foundation in God rests upon this revelation that God is a God who loves us, that he's good, that he is faithful, and that he is just, that his loving kindness knows no end, that as far as the heavens are to the earth, so far has he removed our sins from us. And part of this foundation is to help us to understand that this is not a license for us to sin, but that anything that could potentially put a wall between us and God, God has dealt with it. That there is nothing so great that we could do and there is no amount of times that we could do it that we reach this point in God where he says, you're cut off. Like that is so critical to our foundation in God. And when you look at this, John is saying that this is, when he says, I write to you little children, he's essentially saying that you can't even progress to the next phase of your development, that you can't even move into the next arena of maturity and victory until this is a cornerstone revelation in your life. Because you're going to keep getting tripped up. You're going to keep stumbling. And when you get into the next phase of your life where you're designed to be fighting the battles of the enemy and you're supposed to be overcoming sin and shame and guilt, you can't do it because the foundation of the character of God has not been established as revelation in your life. Let's keep reading verse 12. He goes on to say, and I write to you, fathers and mothers, or some translations say, I write to you mature ones, because you have known him who is from the beginning. Listen to that language. You have a lasting relationship. You have an intimate relationship with God where the character and the nature of God has unfolded before you. Do you realize, and some of you guys have been living in God for quite some time, that God will actually, there's levels of nuance to the character and the nature of God. You thought you knew who God was your first 10 years. You thought that you understood God as a father. You thought you understood God as a provider. I love that song we sang today. He's the same God, right? You were providing then, you're providing now. And some of us, here's how you know where you're at. If you're still in a measure of fear or uncertainty or anxiety or doubt around a certain area of the character of God, there's no shame in that. It just means that God is still perfecting that revelation of his character in your life. Listen to me. There's no shame in that. God is happy to keep providing for you until that becomes revelation and you just go, I'm just not worried anymore. He's a provider. I got it. It's in me. I don't have to faith my way into believing that you're a provider. I just know. And this is the beauty of what 
happens when you live in God for a long season of life. There are dimensions and aspects of his character that just become so real to you. And then you can move on to the next one. So then he says, keep reading with me. He says, I write to you, young ones, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you because you have overcome the evil one. You you could also say, I write to you because you are in the process of overcoming the evil one. I write to you because the syllabus of heaven for your life in this season is for you to grow into people that know how to fight and overcome. And remember, I'm just reiterating the fact that most of us spend the majority of our Christian lives in this season of being what John calls young ones. Let's keep reading. He reiterates this again with a little bit of nuance for the children and for the young ones. Verse 14, I write to you, dear children, because now you know the Father. It's not just a revelation of forgiveness, but now through that foundationing of the Father's grace and mercy, which know no end, you know the Father. Interestingly enough, and some of you know my story, that I have been following hard after God for almost 20 years, at least 15, until the revelation of who God as Father was, was established as a cornerstone revelation in my life. Again, this is a foundational revelation to growth in God. You cannot move into deeper areas of growth and maturity and battles that you overcome beyond your revelation of God who forgives you, the grace and mercy of God, and who God is as Father. And if you try to fight beyond your foundation, you're going to be in trouble. He goes on again to say the exact same thing to the mature ones. He says, I write to you, fathers and mothers, because again, you know him who was from the beginning. There's, there's something in that. He's essentially reiterating to the same group of people This longevity, the revelation of who God has been over the course of your life for the long haul, this right here is how you will be marked by. I hope it's said of me in the latter years of my life, Jay Duncan, I'm writing this letter to you because you have cultivated a deep, lasting revelation of God that has carried you for decades. This is the Simeon message that we talked about several, several months ago. And then he adds some nuance here to the young ones, which I love. He says again, I write to you, young ones, for three reasons. Number one, so that you'll be strong. So that you'll be strong. So much of our Christian life, for the good chunk of 20 to 40 years, we're learning how to be strong in God. Not strong in our soul, not strong in our will, but strong in God. And you find this all throughout the scriptures You find this in Psalm 18 where David says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. You find this in 2 Timothy chapter 2 where Paul exhorts young Timothy, says, therefore I exhort you to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. So there is this dynamic to victory and maturity in God where we have to learn how to be strong in the Lord. And it's not going to happen in one message. It's over the course of long seasons that we fight and we train 
that we engage in the yoke of discipline, which is the foundation word for discipleship. It's through not giving up. It's through persevering in God that we learn, oh my God, like I'm getting stronger in my ability to withstand sin. I'm getting stronger in my ability to lean into God when the pressure is on in my life externally. I'm developing a fight in my bones. How many of you guys know what I'm talking about today? Oh, yeah. I'm able to withstand pressure. I'm, with, I'm, I'm able to withstand the persecution that comes from the enemy, from the dissenters, from the, from the antagonists. And I'm able to do it with a greater measure of ease because I'm becoming strong in the Lord. Look at the next thing he says, I write to you young, uh, you young ones so that you will be strong in the Lord and so that the word of God will live inside of you. And then he says the exact same thing that he said the first time. He says, so that you will overcome, overcome the enemy, right? So sandwiched right in the middle to the young ones, he says, I'm writing this to you so that you will be strong. I'm writing this to you so that you will overcome. And what's the key to that overcoming? He sandwiches it right in the middle. You want to know how you learn how to become strong in God? It says it right there. The word of God has to live inside of us. Like I'm grateful for so many of the spiritual disciplines. Man, you put me in a prayer room and I'm Shondala all day long. I love it. Man, just let me pace back and forth in the spirit and I, it's go time. But listen, if I don't have an anchor of the word of God living inside of me, I have no weapons to fight the enemy with. And some of you, the enemy is having a field day on your mind. He's having a field day because you have no weapons to fight with. Jesus is in the wilderness, we find in Matthew chapter 4. And the enemy comes and he says, hey, Jack, if you really are the son of God, then what? Then make these stones become bread. And what's the first thing out of Jesus' mouth? It is is written. If you want victory, you must have the word of God living inside of you. When the word of God is living inside of you, whatever situation it is that you're facing, God will give you enhanced revelation from the word that's deposited inside of you for every nuance of every unique situation that you're in. And if there's more word inside of you, guess what? It's just, it's just an arsenal of ammunition to fight, to gain victory, to overcome the evil one. Oh, yeah. And what you find all throughout 1 John, friends, is this. If you look for it, if you look at this as a lens and a grid by which to read the entirety of 1 John, what you'll find is, oh my gosh, there it is right there. He's speaking to the young ones. It's a revelation of forgiveness. Let me show you. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Who is John writing to right here? If you confess your sins, he is what? We said it last week, faithful and just. Some of us are not confessing our sins because at the root of our revelation of God, we don't believe that he is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That needs to be a revelation in our life for us to move into the next season of our development and maturity. Look with me at 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. 1 John chapter 2. 
He says, my dear children, listen to the language, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, listen, we have an advocate with the Father. Some of you need to know today that you have an advocate with the Father. Do you know what this word here, the language here, this is a defense attorney. It's a legal term. So so John is writing on behalf of the heart of God to this community. And he is saying, listen, my hope is that you grow and you mature so much that you will not sin when you're tempted, that you will not sin when you're persecuted. But listen, I know that we've not received our perfected state yet, so I realize that you will sin in your progress and in your process of maturity and development. So listen, young ones, he's writing, children, realize this, when you do sin, because you will sin, you have an advocate. Don't, Don't stay another second in the penalty box of condemnation and shame than you need to be. And you know how long you need to be in there? None. Right? This is, what, this is what John is trying to get into the fabric of the community there so that they can walk in increasing victory and maturity. When you do sin, you've got a defense attorney. And here's what the defense attorney is saying. He's going before the judge, who in this picture is God the Father. And we have the prosecutor who's the enemy, and he's saying, Your Honor, you need to know that Jay Duncan has been a really bad boy this week. You, know, you need to know, and he just begins laying out, and he's, just, he's an accuser. That's what he does. Accuse, 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 accuse. And the father's listening to all of those things, and he's saying, well, you make a really good point here. You're actually creating a really good case against my son. And this is where, oh, but, but excuse me, sir. And this is where defense attorney steps up, and he says, I just want to remind you that on the basis of my blood, that on the basis of the fact that I laid my life down to be the atoning sacrifice, both the propitiation and the expiation of sins for the entire human race. Your honor, your son is not guilty. You have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only, but for the entire world. Guys, this is, this is critical to your victory and your maturity in God. Amen? Amen? Okay, so let's go, if we would, to 1 John chapter 2. And in the first service, I really leaned in on those first three verses. Where John is addressing a community of people. Yesterday, this was so sweet. I was hanging out with my daughter, and she said, So, Dad, what are you preaching on tomorrow? And she asked me that every week, and she says, I know you're preaching on 1 John, so, you know, you're not going to get off the hook that easy. She said, what specifically are you preaching on in 1 John? And so I'm trying to break this down on a level that a teenage girl could understand. And this is, this is how it came out. I said, Milan, I want you to imagine that if, that if mom and dad moved away and we became missionaries somewhere, but yet we still had some form of apostolic relationship with Midtown. We're writing a letter because there's a group of people in Midtown who are rising up and they're causing trouble. And this group of people in Midtown are sowing discord and division in Midtown, and they're doing it based on lies about who Jesus is. And so this is what's happening in 1 John. John the apostle, John the elder is writing 
his beloved community because there's a faction of people that are causing trouble. And they're causing trouble based on this one theological error, which is this. Jesus Christ really did not come in the flesh. In fact, you'll see when you read the remainder of the letter that John goes so far as to say that the Antichrist spirit is the one who denies that Jesus came in the flesh. And that's a whole other teaching as it relates to the spirit of the Antichrist and the implications. If Jesus didn't come in the flesh, if the incarnation wasn't real, if all of this is just some big massive spiritual experience, but it, the name of the game in Christianity is an embodied faith, is, it, is a lived out spirituality. That's what God has been chasing inside of us from the very beginning that the word would become flesh in our lives. So one of the implications of this error is that a community is growing with this idea that it doesn't really matter what I do, if I sin or if I don't sin, it's not a big deal. And the other implication is it doesn't really matter if I love my neighbor or not, because after all, the only thing that really matters as far as spiritual things go are the things that are quote unquote spiritual. Are you with me? Right? So the only thing that really matters is what I put in the spiritual box. Prayer, Bible study, fasting, reading, maybe giving some money to the poor, maybe, but that's, that's a little bit too material. But it's just really all about this experience that I have with God. That's what matters. And what John is emphatically addressing is no. The proof of your spirituality in God is fleshed out in the way you live your life. Now, remember, there's two big massive themes that John is addressing here. Number one, God is light. And number two, God is love. And you see this woven all throughout all five chapters. God is light. Therefore, the way we live, whether we live in sin or whether we live righteous, matters. The way that we measure the fruit of our spirituality is based on whether or not we're living according to the light. But God is also love. So the way that we measure the maturity of our Christianity or our spirituality is do we love our brother and our sister? Okay, so let's jump into this. Let's go over, if we would, to 1 John chapter 2, verse 7. So I'm skipping verses 3 through 6. You can listen to some of that in the first uh, service if you want to. We're going to pick this up at verse 7. This is a little riddle. It kind of annoyed me as I studied this, but I think I got it. Dear friends... I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. And this old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Which is it, John? Is it an old command or is it a new command? Look at verse 8. I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. All right, back to verse 7. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command. What is John speaking of here? Well, in order for us to understand this, we have to go back to John's gospel, which is not on our slides. So, Everett, I'm going to give you some time to pull up John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35. And if you're taking notes, you can write down John 13, verse 34 and 35. When John is writing his gospel, 
You can find him, particularly in chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16, say this over and over and over again. There is this new emphasis of a new command that Jesus is bringing to his disciples. And essentially what Jesus is saying is this. Of all of the commands that you have learned since you were young, as you studied the Torah, as you read through the Pentateuch, as you read the law over and over and over again, all of those laws were condensed down to 10. Jesus is saying, I'm going to make it even easier for you. I'm going to condense all of this, the heart of Christianity, the heart of knowing who I am, the heart of living in me, the heart of being a follower of Jesus. I'm going to condense it all down to a new command. And what is that new command? Love one another. Love one another. Listen, this is why we got to catch this. When John the Apostle writes 1 John and he establishes first that God is light, he is establishing this fundamental principle that love is not based on our feelings, that love is not based on what we experience, that love is not defined by how we want to define love. This is why God establishes truth and light first. In other words, love has rules. Are you with me today? Like if we're not really leaning in to the full-orbed argument that John is making, we'll just walk away assuming, well, if I'm I'm nice to people, and if I kind of have a case, sirrah, sirrah, and just let, let people do whatever they want to do, well, then that's the measure of what it means to be a Christian. And that, friends, is not necessarily love because love runs on rails. Love runs on rails. Love has boundaries. Love has rules. Like if I just kind of did whatever I wanted to do and Christy allowed me to do it in the name of love and I was violating covenant agreements and she's like, oh, well, you know, everything's fine because I love him, but that's not love. Are you hearing me today? And see, like we operate like this when we go to a business. Like you bring your car into a business and you get the oil changed like, there are rules that you operate off of. You expect them to do what they say they're going to do. You expect them to put the oil cap back on. You expect them to put good, fresh oil back in. You expect them to make sure that everything was better. If they found any errors, they told you about it, they didn't create more problems. Like, what is that called? Those are called rules, rules of engagement. And if we're not careful, we'll begin sipping the Kool-Aid of the culture and assuming that everything goes in the name of love. And that's not love. Because the world who does not know God does not have the authority to define what love is. It's not loving to engage in a relationship without boundaries. That's not loving. Because at some point, if you're operating in an anything-goes relationship with someone else, at the end of that, there's going to be pain and there's going to be destruction. And if the way that we're operating leads us to pain and destruction, guess what? It's not love. So Jesus clarifies this, and he clarifies it multiple times in the Gospel of John, and then John clarifies it multiple times in the Epistle of John, going back to John chapter 13, verse 34. Look at this. A new command I give you. Love 
one another. But how? Here's here's the qualifier. As I have loved you. As I have loved you. See, God is the one who defines what love is. Turn with me if you would. We're going to go all over the place. Go to 1 John chapter 3 and go with me to verse 16. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. And we're going to land this plane here in a moment. First John chapter 3, verse 16, John says, This is how we know what love is. So you told me that you have a new command for me. It's a new one. And that new command is that I am to love one another just as you have loved me. So then we have to ask ourselves, Jesus, how did you love me? Or how did you love us? Or how'd you love the disciples? Or how'd you love the world? And he explains it right here in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Self-sacrificial love is God's definition of love in every human relationship that we have. So if we're parlaying our own pleasure or power or will over someone against their will or against their good, guess what? It's not love as God defines what love is. If we're violating someone else's boundaries and values and identity and self-worth in the name of love, if you really love me, it's not love as God defines what love is. At the core of what love is, you know what you will find? You'll find a lot of death. A lot of dying to our own selfish desires, a lot of dying to our own pleasure, a lot of dying to our own will, a lot of dying to our own ego. Like that's what love is as God defines what love is. So then he goes on. Let's go back to 1 John chapter 2. So dear friends, back back to verse seven. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one. What is he referring to? He's referring to John chapter 13, verse 34. He's going back probably about uh, 85, 90. So now we're probably going back about 50 to 60 years prior. John is going back to when Jesus was in that upper room conversation with his disciples. So when he wrote 1 John the letter, he's writing this about 50 years after the fact. So when he tells his community, I'm not giving you a new command, you know what he's referring to? He's referring to John chapter 13, verse 34. When Jesus tells his disciples, this is the command. This is the heart of Christianity. This is what it means to be a Christ follower. You gotta love one another. And you gotta love them as I have loved you. So back to 1 John chapter two, verse seven and eight. I hope I'm not losing anybody. I'm not writing you a new command. I'm writing you an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message. It has never changed. Love one another. Look at verse eight. But I'm writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him. And now, here's the kicker, in you. This is the new command. The new command is everything that Jesus did in his self-sacrificial, cruciform way of life Here's what John is saying. The new reality is this is now available for you. 
Like you are the ones who are called and commissioned to love God by loving his people with the same self-sacrificial love that Jesus loved his people with. It's through you now. It's through you. He has empowered you by his spirit. He has given you the example. He's given you the model. He has given you the command. And now here's the new command. We are living in a new kingdom whereby people will experience the love of God through your life. Let's keep reading. Here's where it's gonna get really, really good. And I gotta land this plane fast. Verse nine, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister, still in the darkness, still in the darkness. So friends, listen, this is where I could, I could, really, I could really get gnarly here. I could really get really gnarly. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Wow. We have to be careful of a type of Christianity that endorses our own vitriol. We have to be careful of a kind of cultural, nationalistic Christianity that justifies our internal hatred towards our enemies. That's not God. It feels great. It's not God. Based on 1 John chapter 3... Verse 8, if I'm understanding, verse 9, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Jesus said it like this, going back to John chapter 13, 34, and 35. He said it like this. This is how the world will know that you are my disciples. You want to be legit? You want to be authentic? You want to validate the fact that you actually belong to this this new kingdom community, here's how. You love one another in such a way, in spite of your animosity, in spite of your disagreement, it doesn't matter if it's a good day or a bad day, you keep tapping into self-sacrificial love. You forgive, you lean in, you pursue, you heal, you repent, you say, I'm sorry, you serve one another, you bless one another, you go the extra mile, and guess what the world's gonna do? They're gonna go, wait a minute, I know that you guys disagree. I know that you guys are on opposite sides of the spectrum on that issue, and yet you're still coming and breaking bread together. You're still coming and worshiping together and praying for each other and believing for the best in each other's lives. You're still fighting battles for each other. How is this possible? And you can say, it is only possible by the reality of who God is in our lives. That's the new command. And listen, it's hard. I get it. It's impossible. It's impossible without the spirit of God. Oh, I like, oh, I want to go into social issues right now, friends. Like all of the demonization and all of the polarization, it will never be solved without God's people. We're the only ones who can model to the world, this is how you disagree in a loving and reconciling spirit. Christy and I disagree on everything. But we do it in love. And we stay so committed to each other that we realize that over the course of times, here's one of two things will happen. Either number one, those disagreements will, will they'll just fall away and we'll realize that was the stupidest thing. Why we even disagree on that? Or one of us will submit and bend and change to the other because of love. 
So if you claim to have fellowship with the light, but you're harboring anger, you're harboring a habit of hatred, you're harboring animosity towards someone else who claims to be a believer, who's doing their absolute best, who's still kind of becoming sanctified from their old way of life. Friends, listen, this is what the scripture says. Scripture says, you're in the dark. Let's keep reading here, 1 John chapter 2, verse 10. But on the counterpart of this, anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. I think one of the reasons why we're so nervous, we're so afraid, we're so afraid to let people be where they're at and love them where they're at is because we're like, oh, but if, but if we give them that, then they're, they're going to win the argument and then we're all going to just fall into this big spiral. And John is saying, listen, you can't lose with love. You can't lose with love that is based on the light. Yes. I'm not talking about a sloppy agape. I'm not talking about an anything goes love. I'm talking about a love that is based in the light of yes. God. A love that says, you're angry with me and I'm angry with you. Here, grab my hand. Let's get into the light of God together. You can't lose. Nothing inside of them will make them stumble. Are you with me? Let's look at the next verse right here. This is where he breaks it all down. This is, this is where the, the mic drops. 1 John chapter 2, verse 11, then we're done. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks in the darkness. They don't even know where they're going because the darkness has blinded them. Friends, listen, this is the ethic for socially controversial issues in a postmodern generation. It's always been the ethic. We just had the upper hand as Christians in previous generations because we occupied more seats of power at the table that has shifted. And we're trying to fight a culture war based on previous notions of power dynamics at the table. And you know what's going to happen is, like our enemies are just going to say, that's fine. We're just going to kick you out. We're going to just take away your seat at the table. Like there's a lot to this. Here's the ethic. If we're harboring hatred, we lose influence. Here's why. Here's why. Here's why. Because when we harbor hatred, no matter how justified you feel like you are, whatever the topic is, when you harbor hatred inside of you, you put yourself in a place where you can't trust yourself. Why? Because you're living in the dark. And if you're living in the dark, you're walking in the dark. And if you're walking in the dark, you don't even know where you're going. So you're trying to like, you're fighting these invisible battles in the dark, but you're doing it in a way that's not empowered by the light. So consequently, watch this, there is no life in your fight. 
So everything that you're doing out there with whoever it is you're doing with, it's not producing the life of God. Why? Because it's not in the light. Why? Because it's not in love. It's really simple. You harbor hatred. You live in the dark. You live in the dark. You open yourself up to deception. And you'll see this over, again, you'll see this over and over again. When John talks about his enemies, this is the language he uses. He says, those who have left us, and they left us because they were never really a part of us, because if they were a part of us, they would have stayed with us from the beginning. And then he goes on to say, there are a group of people that are trying to lead you astray. This is the language of the enemy, right? The enemy wants to lead us astray by playing to our fears and justifying hatred. But God never justifies hatred. Never. Because when you live in hatred, you live in the dark. And the dark is the domain of the enemy. So even if you're saying the right things, you're doing it from the wrong spirit and it's not producing life because it's coming from the dark. Stand with me. Man, first service got it easy. Come on up, communion team and altar team, get in place. Can we just sit in this for about 60 to 90 seconds? Holy Spirit, come. Shine your illuminating light on us. This is a really great point of the service to repent, confess your sins before God. This is a really great point of the service to say, Lord, bring your light and examine me. Heal me. Heal us. Have mercy on us. Cleanse us. Cleanse us, God, of all unrighteousness. Lord, we want to be a people that live in the light, which means that we have to be a people that love. Love is the doorway into the light. So, Father, right now, where we have harbored unforgiveness, where we have harbored resentment, where we have harbored anger and resentment and vitriol and poison, God, where we have made people of other political persuasions or racial persuasions or economic persuasions our enemies, and and they are actually your children, God, heal us, forgive us, have mercy on us, bring us into light. Lord, where we've done this with different denominations, where we've done this with people who see different theological issues differently and we've made them out to be enemies and we've blasted them and slandered them, God, have mercy, Lord, bring us into the light. Lord, we've done this to previous business partners or coworkers. Oh, God, have mercy and bring us into the light. And I'm just going to say right now, God, we don't know how to live in the light and live in love at the same time. It's so hard. But would you help us? 
Would you help us to be a cruciform people? Would you teach us what it means to lay down our lives for one another, to linger longer, to be more patient and gracious with each other, to care about the community of believers? Would you do that in us? Would you do it in this house? Friend, right now, I just sense that there's, there's somebody, if not some people in the room, you've been holding on to an offense. And you were, you were truly, you were truly the victim. But you've been holding on to this offense so much that you now have adopted the identity of a victim. And it is robbing you of victory. And the invitation of the Lord for you right now is let that go. Forgive. You are not a victim. We break the power of victimization right now off of you. And we release the victory and the authority of God for you to cancel the sins of those who have sinned against you and for you to step into your true identity as a son and daughter who is called to be strong, who is called to overcome the enemy. Friend, right now in this holy space, cancel that debt. Let's come to the table. Friends, we invite you to the table of the Lord. You can exit out on your left. Receive the pronouncement of the body broken for you and the blood shed for you, and we'll all take this together. God bless you.